Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. Joining me in studio today, a rare treat as of late in studio guests, uh, Kaylee Kozak and her husband, Kelsey. And they're going to talk to me today and educate me a little bit about uh, Kaylee's law. And we're going to uh, hear, I think for the first time on this show, we're going to hear uh, from uh, a victim of a, of a heinous series of crimes and sort of the lasting impact that that's had. So thank you both for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Uh, I do appreciate you also making the long drive out here. I know it's uh, you basically had to drive to New Mexico. So well, yeah, from East LA, it was quite the haul. No, it's good. You, you chartered a flight halfway. I had to go pick him up from the Southwest terminal nearby. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, so Kaylee again, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we've been talking a little while back. I was, uh, uh, hoping to have met you out at the, the Saki conference, the sex assault kid initiative conference in Scottsdale a few months back. Uh, unfortunately you weren't able to make it, but here you sit in my studio. So, uh, uh everything happens for a reason. Yeah. I mean, very... well, when you have five kids and being a mom is your number one priority, sometimes it just gets in the way. And so I wasn't oh, able yeah. to make it. It sucked, but I'm happy to be here today. Well, and, and I did write on my form that they need to invite you back next year. Oh, good. Okay. So hopefully they actually read those. Uh, I got pretty spicy in the, 2020 forms uh from a guest that they'd had who uh, uh was a little bit less than friendly towards law enforcement and the vast majority of the audience at that conference are svu detectives such as myself and so mm -hmm. i was sitting there like what the hell but this was a great conference and hopefully next year we get you back out there i hope so um so uh caesar the guy who organizes that in the off chance that you're listening I think Kaylee's open to coming back on the show. Yes. So Kaylee, I do want to start out though, just to give the listeners uh, a little bit of an indication as to who you are uh, and, and break the ice. Uh, I'd like to know if you could have a drink with anybody living or dead, who is it? And what are you drinking? Oh, I don't even know. Uh, gosh, I love water, iced coffee. I'm not a big like drinker drinker. Um, I do like blue moon, but honestly, iced coffee is the way to my heart. So uh, ice vanilla latte, sugar-free, sugar-free, um, vanilla latte. All right. But I think in this moment right now and in this season of my life that I'm in Andy Frisella, if I could snag him for a little bit, just one-on-one -on -one time. Um, I think that's who I, who I'd sit down with. And what would, what would you and Andy talk about? Well, how his program changed my life. I mean, I, I only hope one day he knows that 75 heart, it really did change my life and it saved me in, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm so grateful for that program and I rant and rave about it. And I, it's, it's just so much more than, you know, fitness. It's, it's just a mental discipline program. And I started it, um, the same time I started everything I'm working on, like literally the same day I made a choice. Like today is the day that I'm going to turn my life around. I was in a really dark place in October of 2020 and I think it was 2020. Yeah, 2020. Like, it's been so, like, time goes so quickly. Um, and I just, you know, we were all, it was such a weird time just in general for like our world. And someone had sent me 75 hard a few months prior. And there, I just, there was no way I had time to do 70. Who has time to do that shit? But for some reason, I woke up that morning and October 30th, and I thought, today is the day. Today is the day I'm going to change my life. And I started 75 hard. And I called the senator's office until they answered my phone to work on Kaylee's law. And that day, just everything changed for me. And I would love just to express my gratitude for him because he just doesn't know how, 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 I can't, sometimes finding the words, it makes me emotional, how much that program meant to me and helped me in my life. 
And 75 Hard is, is growing in popularity. My mother-in-law and her husband just finished it. Again, same, same, kind of a, you know, changed their lives as far as like their, their physical uh, and mental health. Because you do, you do mention that it is a mental game as well. Because you look at it and it's 75 days straight, two 45-minute workouts. One of them's outside. You have to read 10 pages in like a self-help or entrepreneur type book. Um, uh, no alcohol. Uh, you have to diet appropriately, but they don't necessarily tell you what the diet is. Meal plan. Meal plan. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was going over it with uh, with one of my my partners at work, and I'm like, dude, we we should start this. I was like, I've got my anniversary trip, uh, and then police week, and when I get back from police week, because uh, yeah, I don't think you go to police week without without drinking beer. Um, I won't. I've never been before, but I'm guessing because uh, I have been at cop parties, and I think that uh, DC and Police Week is just one gigantic cop party. Uh, but I said, look, when I get back from DC, uh, the you know I'll have my wife's birthday the day after I get back, and then we should start 75 hard. And he was like, yeah, okay, do it. What do you have to do? And then I explained it to him, and he went, oh, I, I don't know about that, man. But. Um, what are some of the what were some of the most challenging aspects of, to me I, it's i don't think it's the the 245 minute workouts I, I think you make time yeah right if you want to get it done you will find a way to priorities. get it done it, it's prioritize you know priorities but what what are some of the more challenging aspects of it at least as far as as you you noticed for me the workouts weren't that hard i mean it was a lot because my kids were home they weren't in school my husband was working six twelves, and so trying to find the groove um, with the two forty-five minute workouts. The gym was closed, so you had to be get creative with things. And uh, I did a lot of walking, which you couldn't have paid me hundred bucks to walk to the mailbox before that. So you know, for some people, you just like some people like weightlifting more than they like cardio, and so that was a, a big change for me. But there's walking with five kids is not for the week. And so I'm, I mean, half the time I'm throwing kids over my shoulders and, you know, dragging them along or running back to grab one because they're, because I have five kids. So, you know, dealing with all that, but I also use them to work out, uh, you know, being on my back when I'm squatting or, um, you know, it was weights, just helping with that. And it, it became a fun thing for us. I think for me, the hardest thing wasn't the workouts. It wasn't the water, I don't drink a lot. So that, I mean, I was pregnant nursing for 10 years. So that really wasn't, it was the reading. It was just like time, the day would go by and to sit down and have that uninterrupted time where I couldn't multitask just to focus on reading. That was the hardest part for me. And I found myself a lot of times being like, oh shit, I don't have no idea what I just read. And I didn't, I was so important to me not to fail and to hold myself you know, accountable. And so I'd go back and reread. Um, and so that was the hardest thing for me was by far reading. Well, and if you fail at any point in time, you have to start all over again, right? Yes. Man, I'm just going to mentally process that for a minute. I, uh, and I, I mean, I commend you for having five kids and doing it. I, I have a two-year-old, uh, and I get what you're saying about using them for the workouts. Like you could sit there and my two-year-old is 36 pounds. So you can sit there and, and do curls with a two-year-old yeah. for, for 15 minutes and you're totally gassed afterwards. Um, and, and it's also, he's he's kind of been our, like my wife and I is driving force as far as doing our like evening walks. And it's no big stretch. I think it wouldn't be that hard for us to extend those like mm -hmm. 25 minute walks to 45 minutes. Yeah. So Especially he's still in a stroller. So he's sort of contained. Yeah, that's and and we it just became so much more for our family, my kids and holding me accountable, like on Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, uh, we bought them bikes, all new bikes for Christmas. So that was fun because we did bike rides and just like being intentional about that. 
But my husband, the first time I did the initial program, he did not do it with me. He thought I was crazy. Uh, but I think it's fair to say you saw very quickly how good it was, like how, how it was helping me because I was in such a dark place prior to starting. Oh, it was like a night and day difference. You could, you could totally tell a difference. So I think, but what's funny is he would go on walks with me with. <laughs> so I, I would do the, the two 45 minute workouts with her. We go on our walks all the time, but I'd bring beer. Oh, my man, I like it. Oh, no, he'd have so, a beer in each back pocket. I told her, I was like, hey, we, we need to do a lap back around the block to the house because my beer is a little low. So. Or he had to pee. <laughs> I used to have a neighbor next door, and I'd always see it. This is before my wife and I had our kid. They, they've since moved, and they had twins. And I'd always see them out for walks, and he had one of those, like, Yeti tumbler glasses. And I finally was like, dude, don't you think you need more water? And he just goes, this isn't water and continues on his walk. Oh, Oh, no, I get it now. Yeah, Kelsey just have his can of beer and just be out walking. But I mean, I didn't care because it became um, intentional time we were spending together. And we really learned uh, how much we needed that with five kids and how crazy it was. And then it turned into so I did the initial program. I don't even know. I think I lost like 25 pounds, but that's not why I was doing it. But I I went all in like that's what you have to understand. I my husband, he got me, uh, paid for me to work with a nutritionist. And so I was counting, learned how to count macros and I was learning how to be intentional with my food. I was actually under eating, which was crazy because I didn't realize that. So just learning how my body processes food and, and you know what I need. And so I did that. Um, and then I ended up having surgery when I finished the first phase had a major complication. So I ended up being out of the game for three months and, but still working with that nutritionist and again, diet, they say it's 80% of it. Right. And, um, that was hard to just going from doing everything to then just doing nothing after that surgery. And then the complication, the additional surgery. And then April 1st of 2021, uh, I had started phase one and then I did phase two and for 75 days instead of 30 days, because I wanted, I knew I could, I wanted that challenge. And then I completed phase three in October because it's the last 30 days. Uh, that was fucking hard. Like all the additional things. And like, we went on vacation, but I didn't want to, at that point, you're, you're so high from the program. You don't want to fail. And again, just being so intentional and uh, my kids, you know, holding me accountable and, and literally planning our trip around workouts and things. And like I said, I had started the two on the same day in October of 2020. And I kid you not, every time I was on the program, something big happened with Kaylee's Law. Like it never failed. And it was incredible. And it was, it just really, it helped keep me focused. Um, my walks that I did alone, I got to spend time with like really intentional time with God and like force myself like, no, I'm not going to listen to a podcast. I'm not going to listen to music. I'm going to get to that uncomfortable place, which for me is like being, you know, quiet or being out in nature with like no distractions. I'm not used to that, but having that intentional time, it just helped me with everything that was going on and reprocessing because what you have to understand is January of 2020, my whole life turned upside down and then fucking COVID happened. And it just, and that had nothing to do with my life being turned upside down, but it definitely added to it. So I think probably the craziest day though, and I always find this funny of 75 hard that I ever had was phase two in July. In the same week I had flown to Wisconsin and Utah for Kaylee's law. And in Wisconsin, I was at the Alec organization and I had to do a same day flight because that was on a Thursday and my kids all had dentist appointments on Friday and we couldn't find a babysitter. (laughs) 
and you couldn't take off work because he had training. Like it was, of course, everything, you know, so I did a same day flight. So we got up at, I think, 2.45 in the morning, did my first workout, went home, packed, got all the kids lunches, you know, got everything ready for the day Um, because you have to wait the two hours, waited the two hours. Then I did my second workout um, exactly two hours after. I had finished both my workouts. I think it was around 6.30, you know, got ready, flew to Utah, went straight from the airport to the conference, did the conference, made sure I was drinking Uh, water every hour. That was easy. My macros was the hardest thing that day, like making sure I was staying on top of my food. And then you're at this, this conference with all these legislators, right? And then we go to the Arizona dinner that they had. And I mean, here I am with all these um, senators and representatives and they're like bringing me wine and champagne. And I'm like, I can't, I need water. And then they brought me water in a can. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like who drinks water out of a can? But, uh, you know, they were all like, Oh my gosh, it's just one drink. No one will know. And at that point it almost like, it just made me feel so empowered. Like, no, I know I can't drink. And here I am like you drink, but I'm not because I can't. And I got home at, I think one 30 in the morning. Oh my gosh, the car. Um, I, <laughs> Kelsey had a like a 2000 2000 Jetta right TDI and so I had to take that to the airport I think it's a piece of shit like but he likes to drive it to work because it gets 45 miles a gallon so I had gotten off the plane and it was I think it was God, I don't know like midnight close to one in the morning and I get in there and because it, like some I said it called him I'm like the sailboat's on like the light it was beeping and he's like what the fuck what do you mean the sailboat is on in the car and I'm like I don't know I'm so tired but uh it woke me up to get me home at least and I got home at like 2 30 in the morning so it was like a t- literally a 24-hour day from like the time I was up and of course the flight from Utah to Arizona is not that long so it's right. not even like I could nap but I remember getting home and just feeling so proud of myself for not failing and being so intentional about my day and and prioritizing um, my tasks that I had to do. And that just that day, it's like, if I could do this, I can do anything. And so, and, and you know, listening to Frisella's podcast and things, um, but that program, man, it is not for the week. And I get so frustrated when people are like, oh, I need to get in shape. I'm going to start 75 hard. And I just say, don't even start then. Because if that's why you're doing it, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Um, but I'm all for it. I love 75 hard. Well, I will keep you in the loop. Uh, uh, going to make a conscious decision to just do it. Cause if I sit here and I'm like, Oh, I think then I always give myself an mm-hmm. excuse. Right. Um, but I'm going to, uh, to work to bring some of my compatriots in and on it with me. Um, my whole thing with it was I had taken a class years and years ago and there was this dude in there from Norway of all places. And it was just here in Scottsdale. Like it wasn't, wasn't terribly far away. Um, and uh super fit dude healthy eater and i was asking him about it uh you know like his his lifestyle and that's i was just like 10 years ago or something like that and his whole thing was look man i've got like four kids i would like to meet my grandchildren and part of that is is the necessity of being healthy and and being of sound mind and body and i was like well shit and that has stuck with mm-hmm. me to this day especially being in being in law enforcement right not exactly a, a stress-free career mind you and there's some really grave statistics about how long we survive mm-hmm. after retirement. And, uh, uh, I think that every cop working today needs to do everything in their power to beat the shit out of that statistic and, and make sure that, uh, that we push back a little bit, but kudos to you for getting it done. Yeah. And like I said, it, it became a whole thing for our family. Even this morning, it was funny. I went to the gym and took two of my girls and my, my oldest can come upstairs with me. Now my youngest went in the child center and 
she said, I said, I'll just go for a little bit. And she's like 30 minutes. And my oldest is like, no, she has to do 45 because it's like in almost ingrained in them, right. That we do 45 minute workouts. And it's just, it, it really became like this big thing for our family. And I just, I loved it. And I, I will do it again when the time is right. I will admit I have started twice and I've failed, but my head is not in it. And that just tells me like, it's not the time. And not that I'm, I'm truly not making excuses there. I believe there's a season and if you're not in the right headspace, you're going to fail and you're not going to benefit. And actually, my husband ended up doing, you didn't do Live Hard, you failed, just so you know, like the whole year program. But he killed, he killed 75 hard. Um, and when I had started in April after those surgeries um, or whatever, I had, you know, I'd taken that time off. He started, I think, four days after me and we laughed because he had just went and stocked up on all his beer for Easter. And then he's like, no, I'm going to do it. So he started and he got, I think it was like 27 days in and then our baby ended up in the hospital um, and she was dying. I mean, she had bacterial meningitis, like she was dying and he quit and he failed and he was so hard on himself. And, you know, I told him like, even if you would have kept going, you're, you're, you wouldn't have been in the right headspace. Therefore you wouldn't have gained what you should have from the program. So don't beat yourself up for failing. I mean, and we're human, it happens. And I mean, that was just really shitty timing, but he killed it in the, in the two phases. Did you do two? I think you did too. Yeah, I did the original 75 hard and then the two phases. So, okay, yeah. So you did phase so, two. You just never did the last phase. No, I started right uh, right after Father's Day. Was it Father's Day weekend? Yeah, because you kept saying, oh, I would have been done today. And I was like, well, then let's start. And he's like, no, I want to wait. And I'm like, let's just start. And we did. No, the, the one thing I would tell anybody that is going to start it, though, it, um, it it's it's very beneficial if you do it with a group. Like there was a group of us that would, we had a group text going on. We would all check in with each other every day, hold each other accountable. And it really, it really helped to motivate you. And that's my biggest thing I think is that group accountability. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can remember when in my early, early 20, like 1920, 21, I had like three friends that we all consistently worked out together. Um, and it did get to the point where like, okay, they're busy. I can, I can smash out a workout today. But after so many days of not having that group together, you're like, uh, this kind of sucks. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of weird people in the gym, like people wearing Gold's Gym tank tops who you don't look like you've ever been in a Gold's Gym. <laughs> and sir, why can I see your nipples? Like, I don't want to see that shit, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, yeah. So back to the original question, Andy Frisella, totally. And I've written him, I've, you know, messaged him on social media. Obviously, I know he's swamped. I've talked to people at First Form headquarters, you know, and connected with them. And, I always find it funny because he's like, you know, get out there, do something, stop being fucking lazy, like, and bitching and moaning. And I'm like, I'm out here doing something, like, and it's because of your program. Just give me an hour of your time just so I can thank you. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. No doubt I'll cross paths with him one day when the time is right. Absolutely. And you can uh, you can thank him in person, hopefully. I hope so. Uh, you did mention, though, that, uh, that reading was kind of your biggest struggle, but I am curious as to uh, what you're reading now. Like, what books are you reading now or listening to? So reading was my struggle just because, like I said, you can't really multitask. And I, I'm a mom of five kids. Like all I do is multitask. So like taking that time, I've learned how to do it. But right now I'm kind of reading three books, I guess. Um, so I'm reading 12 Seconds in the Dark, John Mattingly. Um, I'm reading that one. I'm reading um, Mending this, one of the Mending the Soul books. And then, um, oh my gosh, I can't even think of what it's called. The Gifts of Imperfection. So I'm, I know it's like horrible. You shouldn't read all three at a time, but um, I'm reading the other two more for like myself mm -hmm. um, or sorry, I'm reading Mending the Soul and the Gifts of Imperfection 
kind of for myself, like one for almost, um, you know, helping me a little bit with where I'm at in my journey and things that have happened, the gifts of imperfection. I've read it several times. It just speaks to me. It just, I I feel like sometimes when I read it, like it was written for me and, and I just feel so encouraged by it. Um, and then I've actually, uh, John Mattingly and I have just kind of connected. And, um, so reading his book, he just sent my husband a signed copy. He was so excited when he got it in the mail, (laughs) but yeah, reading that book, I'm not very far in. He just finished it though. Nice. Right on. And, uh, and Hey, it's always awesome to get a signed book. Uh, you know, everybody's nooks and Kindles and all that shit today. No books don't run out of batteries. Just give me something with paper and and I'll be happy as a clam. And if you put your name in it, I'll be like beaming. Yes. Kelsey loves signed books. That's one of his favorite things. So when Mattingly's book came out, I was like, Hey, can you um, sign my book? And he's like, I'll just send you one. And so we appreciated it a lot. It's a, it's a really good book, but I, unlike her, I love reading. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm my, I don't, know that my wife reads a whole lot, but I think I've got a, I've probably got between like three to five books that I'm sort of reading at any given time. Um, So uh, I get what you're saying about, you know, reading three books, a little bit of a bear of a task and are you really grasping everything? But uh, when there are books that really do speak to you that that you're interested in, I think you're able to gather all the necessary information from it. Yeah. And like I said, I think just with everything like I've gone through and things that I'm working on, I just reference them for different things. And I'm like big on highlighting and um, you and laugh if I pulled out one of my, I bet I have one in my bag. I have like different legislators cards in there because I just like pull one out and mark a page or, you know, whatever. And cause I just, I like to go back and reference them and, and they just, it depends on, I don't know my mood and what I'm dealing with, but I do want to finish Mattingly's book. Um, I took it to the pool the other day and started reading and I was like, why am I trying to read at the pool with five kids? Like, am I stupid? This isn't going to happen. <laughs> See again, multitasking. You just can't do it. I, I, and I don't know that I, I could tell you right now, my wife and I probably will never have five children unless there's some strange fluke with the next go around. <laughs> but, um, but no, even, I mean, even with one kid, but, but to have five of them, like, Again, I mean, my hat's off to both of you for for managing uh, for managing that. So uh, my last icebreaker question, and then we'll get into the meat and potatoes of the interview. You can go forward or backwards 10 years for a 30 minute conversation with yourself. Which direction do you go? Oh, gosh, um, I'm going to say I'd go backwards, but I if I'd push it 15 years, because if I could go back 15 years and talk to my 15 year old self in the midst of my hell, of turning in my abuser, I would love to just go back and be there for myself and comfort myself and just, and, and almost just give myself a high five for everything that I went through and, um, took on as a 15 year old. So I definitely go back, but add an extra five years. Fair enough. I'll let you add the, I'll (laughs) let, let you add the five years because it, that just sort of is going to segue our conversation into, and really how you ended up uh, here in the front room of my house, which I, I uh, call my podcast studio, but everybody knows it's actually just a spare bedroom. Um, but, but talk to us about where did this all begin? You said you were 15. Take me back to that point. So I always say um, in order to understand, you know, the relevance of things, right. And like how, like you have to know the history to understand how important something was or is. And otherwise it just doesn't mean as much, right? Um, like the crazy success stories you hear from, I don't know, just any any of them. Like when you know the struggles that came with it, you appreciate it more. So to really appreciate it, you kind of have to go back. But um, so I'm going to go way, way back. Um, I had a great childhood. I mean, great 
family. We lived in Arizona um, for the first six years of my life. Then we moved to North Carolina um, for six years. And after 9-11, my dad got a job transfer back to Arizona. And so we had moved back here um, in 2003. Gosh, I really should figure that out when, when exactly it was. But... Um, Sorry, you can hear my two-year-old. Oh my gosh, no! I don't even. That doesn't even phase us. He could run in here, and we'd be like, "Hey." Um, side note: When uh, one of the Supreme Court judges was talking about being a mom and you know kids talking, I'm like, "Oh, I can totally relate to that. Like, I can talk through noise and chaos. It doesn't even phase me." But uh, we had moved back here in 2003, and I was actually talking about this the other day. That's really when shit hit the fan for me and I didn't even realize it like right when we moved back to Arizona we had moved um, way out west and we started at a new school I was in sixth grade in middle school and actually uh, m the man who sexually abused me as a child was one of the first encounters we had and that's because he was my PE teacher and he was also my club soccer coach and you know, so my mom ended up working at the school and, you know, she's asking him like, Hey, do you know of any soccer clubs? Actually, I'm a coach of a soccer club. And, um, I was born in 91. So he was the 90 coach. Um, so I could either play on the 90 team or the 92 team. And I kind of played on both, but anyways, so, um, I was sexually abused my sixth and seventh grade year. And my eighth grade year, I had switched schools and the 90 team had all they were all freshmen. So they were playing freshmen or soccer at school, you know, as freshmen. So I played on the 92 team. So I, I, I went from seeing my abuser every day of the week. I mean, practically between school practice tournaments for club soccer to not seeing him at all. And honestly, I think that's the only reason it stopped was because there was no opportunity. It was gone. But other than that, not that that should be minimized or doesn't matter, I mean, we really, I really had a great, like I said, childhood and, and life. And I'm the oldest of three. Um, I was really, really good at soccer. I mean, I was recruited for an Olympic development team. Uh, soccer was my life and always very book smart. I have no problem saying I'm not the most street smart, but um, I mean, I, I'm very book smart. And so um, then I went to private school my freshman and sophomore year. Um, my freshman year, I turned in my abuser and it's always so frustrating when people talk about, you know, why do victims wait? Like, how come they don't just, you know, or people ask me, didn't your parents tell you what good touch, bad touch was? Like, of course they told me that. But when you're being groomed, which how ironic that that's such a hot fucking topic right now, you know, and you're told, you know, things like, I love you and it's different. And yes, this is wrong, but it's different. And and they manipulate you and you're, you're such a young, vulnerable age. And I was so vulnerable anyways, after moving across country and not knowing anybody yeah, and him, I mean, he groomed my family, he groomed the community, my God. Like, I, I guess I knew it was wrong, but he had convinced me this was different. So therefore it was okay. So actually, um, I have no problem saying that when I turned him in, I did not even realize that's what I was doing. I was going to talk to someone to get the confirmation that, no, you weren't actually, you weren't sexually abused or molested. Like it was different. He didn't hurt you because that's how I felt. I did not know that I was turning him in. And so to go to a school counselor who then calls the police and then calls my parents, I mean, I, I just didn't even know that's what was going to happen. Um, and so we can get in, you know, to all that or whatever, but 
just a little bit more about me, you know, went to switch schools my sophomore year. Uh, my family fell apart um, as aftermath of, of turning in my abuser. And I graduated high school early. I graduated with a three-month-old baby. Um, my husband and I have been together for, gosh, almost 15 years. Um, and life just kept going. We just learned how to grow together. And we had one baby. And then we were driving. I could tell you exactly where we were in 2012. I think it was. No, it was 2000. It was, it was 2011. We were driving. And he's like, hey, you want to get married? Sure. He's like, when do you want to get married? I said, how about May? We ended up getting married in March, but then we had another baby and he used to travel for work all the time. And so that, I think that distance really helped us grow um, and really appreciate each other. And so we had two kids and then we had another one. Cause why not? I mean, <laughs> that was our, so we had our son. Um, and at that point, my husband, I mean, we couldn't do the traveling anymore. So he applied and took an internship and we took a really big leap of faith when, when he did that. Um, then we had another baby because again, why not? Actually, that one wasn't planned, but she's our most feisty. It happens. Oh, <laughs> she is our most feisty. Like she's going to change the world, no doubt. Um, and then I was like, let's have one more. <laughs> My poor husband's like, no, no more. And I begged and begged. And now we have our little, little baby girl. She's not, she's going to be four. She's not a baby, but she's my baby. Um, but that was, so we had her in 2018 and then 2019 I graduated college with a bachelor's degree because I was bound and determined to beat, you know, the odds and the statistics. And I wanted to have a college degree. So I have a, a bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies and I always wanted to go to school for like Christian counseling or helping people. At least I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then I was like, no, you know what? I want to go to nursing school. And so my husband was super supportive and I started, um, oh my gosh, I can't even think of what it's called. This program, do you remember what it was called? No. <laughs> He's like, I have no idea. You change your mind all the time. Um, I started a program from like through GCU for like an advanced, like a quick because I already had the bachelor, so I just needed the uh, classes to be a nurse. I'm like, I'm going to be a labor and delivery nurse. I love birth and babies and all the things that come with it. And so that's what I'm going to go to school for. And then God's like, psych. And this whole, my world turning upside down fell in my lap in January, 2020. So that's like a small background of myself, I guess. Um, a little bit of history of everything. Well, and and let's kind of dive into all that. So, because I'm in a unique position as a uh, sex crimes investigator ordinarily uh while i conduct an interview i don't really get to have a, like a, a truly open conversation right i'm there to to conduct an investigation and, mm -hmm. and and that's i hate to say and that's it because there's there's more to it than that but well you do your job I and do then my it goes job. to the next person i do i do my job and then by the time uh usually i'm not even done with anything like i'm halfway through an investigation then i get paper on the next one or yeah. I, get, I get a call out or something like that um but uh, uh so you came back and uh, come back in Arizona. Now you've got this this PE teacher and soccer coach who ended up grooming you uh, and abusing you. And mm -hmm. as you said, grooming, especially right now with the law that Florida just passed and it's the hot button topic in the news. And uh, I, I would like you to speak a little bit more as far as what that grooming behavior looked like, because it can look different for mm -hmm. everybody. But the one sort of consistent thing 
that I hear is, oh, I mean, it, it could stop at any time. Oh, it was different because they love me. Um, but what what was your experience? So here's here's the thing specifically, I, I believe to sexual abuse um, or even domestic abuse. First of all, I think grooming right now, it's so much more than any kind of sexual or domestic abuse, at least that it's starting with, right? Like it's, it's preying on a victim, you know, convincing them of things. Um, it just, it can, it's applicable to so many other things right now that, that are going on in our world. But for me, when I was growing up, it was look for the bad guy in the van, right? Like don't go where there's puppies and someone's trying to get you in their house like that. Right. So that's what our parents taught us. Good to, you know, and if anyone touches you, you tell me like, that's not okay. Those are your, your private parts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but no one taught me, or I believe most children to be aware of the good guys and, um, the, the people that you can trust. And so 93% of victims know their abuser. And that's, that's, so crazy because I think there's this like stigma with, um, you know, sexual abuse or being molested or raped, like that you're kidnapped and held at gunpoint and raped. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. That's actually like super, super like low statistic that that even happened. It happens. I don't want to downplay that, but that's not the, the common thing that happens. And so when you have someone who's in a position of trust and, you look up to them regardless of what their position is or if they're a male or a female and you think that you can trust them and that they genuinely love and care about you but they're taking they're grooming you that's that's what nobody teaches you to look out for that um i have this book that was given to me by swiftac the southwest family advocacy center and i'm talking about like a red flag and a green flag person right like uncle tom's a green flag person because I'm comfortable. Oh wait, uncle Tom just made me feel uncomfortable. Now he's a red flag person. We're not talking about good touch, bad touch. And so learning about the people around you that are bad people, even though they're supposed to be good people that you think you can trust. And so I didn't realize it because I was a child. I was 12 years old. I mean, I was 12. I did not realize the things. I mean, it started very slow, right? Like, um, the extra attention, uh, you know, putting me on a pedestal with soccer. Uh, I just had this conversation too. Like, like I said, he was my PE teacher and there was a couple other kids at the school who played on the soccer club, but I believe in you. So we'd be like running the mile. You know, you just like run the mile at school and get your time. Who do you think was running right next to me? Cheering me on the whole time. What, what did I think? That was just my coach. Like, let's go. You got this. Like, I believe in you. And God, now I look back and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, as an adult, I'm looking back thinking there was so much more. And like, how did nobody see what was happening? Like, I, I it's crazy for me to look back and, and think about those obvious things, but it starts very slow. And then, so in my, think about this too, for my specific situation, my mom worked at the school as a school nurse. He was her coworker. So even if a teacher would have went to her and said like, hey, I noticed Mr. So-and-so is, you know, around your daughter a lot. Like what, how did, how do you think my mom responded? Oh, well, yeah, he's her coach. Yeah. He's helping her. He's at PE. We'd be kicking the ball around. Like, and I think some of that stuff isn't abnormal. Not, not every coach who's outside kicking a ball around with his student is a pedophile, but it's that he crossed the line any second that he could, any chance that he had. And um, so I think, you know, that when I talk about when my mom, like he, there, he groomed my parents, he groomed the community, he groomed the school and other children, like, 
that's not what we're taught to look for. Right. And as somebody who conducts these investigations, and I've only been doing it for a little over a year, um, but but seeing what I've seen, the word charismatic comes to mind when it comes to these known abusers and these people in this position of trust. And, and we use that phrase for those of you outside of the state of Arizona or otherwise unfamiliar with the with the way that the statute reads. A position of trust is a classification which uh, uh, generally adds uh uh, to the offense, it, it makes it kind of that much worse because, as as it implies, that that person is somebody who is uh, supposed to know you and supposed to care for you. And it's it's teachers, uh, it's parents, it's uh, I forget the entire gamut of of people that are covered in that. But um, generally speaking, it's going to be somebody who has a great deal to do with with your life in an immediate sense. So as Kaylee and I talk, and we mention this position of trust, that that's what we're talking about. Yeah, and actually. Um that had just kind of come into play into law in Arizona, like right before all my stuff happened, that position of trust, position of power, whatever you want to call it, it had come in. And, and we still find uh, um, not anything that I can talk about in this setting, given that it's not adjudicated, but we still find instances where you're like, how is this not on that list of people? Like what, what do you mean that's not included in there? And they're like, well, yeah, sorry about that. Well, you should probably change that because yeah. uh, do we all agree that this type of person is in a position of trust? Uh, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying, but like, oh, it's just a lot to make that happen. Like, mm, yeah, you know on. how many times I've heard that? Yeah, we'll get into that. Oh my God, if I could only, if you only knew how many times I hear that. Um, I'm going to go get a heavy punching bag from the store real quick and set it up in the corner <laughs> and then I'll let you go. Gosh. <laughs> But yeah, that's what I think the thing with grooming is it's, it's people teach you to look for that bad, bad guy. And it's actually not the bad, bad guy you need to be. Those aren't even the ones that you need to be more for. It's the nice, charming narcissist ones that we need to be more um, aware of and looking out for. But we're not, we're not taught that, right? Like no right. one teaches you that. Yeah, it, it it's always this sort of like, no, it would never be that person. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's usually that person. Yes. And, and to, uh, this has been, I know, you know, all this stuff resurfacing too. I'm, I can't imagine how hard it's been on my parents. Right. Um, because it, it literally just everything like reopened for us after a decade and we'll get into that. But I, when, when my parent, when they told my parents, it wasn't that my parents didn't believe me, but literally the last person they thought, was it was him. He would never do that. Never. And I mean, to the point where he had the whole soccer team like supporting him. And um, I always tell this, but it just, it speaks of volumes about how, how, what a grip he had on, on people. When he was arrested, we showed up to a soccer tournament in Tucson that weekend. And almost the whole club was wearing shirts that said, we support our coach. And it's like, he didn't just get arrested for no reason. Like they had to have hard evidence, which by the way, we did a confrontation call where he admitted to everything. So it wasn't even like, I mean, like he admitted to everything before, you know, he was even arrested and they played that tape and these motherfuckers still supported him, even hearing him admit to everything, but that he would never. Yeah, there's that. It, it's just so ingrained, this sense of disbelief that even when you do present something like a, a confrontational phone call um, and, and you do present that that evidence, that corroborating those corroborating statements from uh, from the abuser, that people are like, mm, no, I still don't believe it. You're like, look, man, short of me sticking you in the fucking room when this is going on, there's not a whole lot else I can present to you 
to, to try to convince you otherwise. Um, but no, it's, it's disappointing to hear that. And I'm sure that, that, uh, hope, well, I'm not sure, I guess I'm never sure of anything, but I hope that some of those people may be looking back on it, go, oh shit, I was pretty stupid of me to support that person. You know, it's even, <laughs> gosh, um, it's even today with things that are happening. I just, I, I, these people have to live with, you know, you have to live with the choices that you make and if they can still lay their head down at night, I mean, I guess that's on, I mean, that's something they have to live with. I, I, a few, very, very few people had, um, like one, one woman had wrote, had wrote a letter, um, character reference for him. And I think, I believe she was a teacher at the school still. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, during the time, and this was in 2006 and she had five kids and she had said, I'd leave him with my kids all day long. Like this young girl is lying, looking for attention, you know, all the things. And then after he was convicted, um, I think my mom ran into her at the store and she like chased my mom down and apologized. Um, but my, and rightfully so my mom was so hurt and upset. She just didn't even want to hear it. Um, and, and so there's, that's the stuff that no one talks to you about, right? Like, everything that I went through with turning him in. Yeah, that was, that was hard. And, and I, again, like I said, if I could go back 15 years, I don't know how I did that confrontation call as well as I did. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I did it. Um, but I did. And if I could just go back and just give myself a high five for that, but that as hard as that was my hell on earth began after all of that, because no one talks about the, what happens after, you know, the, case closes right everyone's there for the initial trauma like the er everyone's there but then time goes on and people just kind of like fall off and i will be honest with you i i don't really have anything good to say about uh victims advocacy um not necessarily like detectives but anybody involved because i had no one i mean i truly was left out to dry and even with everything that's happened recently since 2020 I just, how was I never, I don't understand how I fell through the cracks as much as I did. And that's part of why I'm fighting so hard for the things that I am, but there's no, nobody there then. And then there sure as hell isn't anybody there for later trauma. Like nobody even wants to talk about that part. So it's this big, and that's where my passion comes in is the later trauma and, and advocating and fighting for laws. But, um, the, the stuff that comes like the indirect things that come in after you turn someone in, it's, it's so hard for victims and their families. It's so hard. Well, and, and when some of these cases hit the news, right, it's a high profile arrest or a high profile individual who gets arrested. I feel like I'm as, as the detective, I don't really see any of that, right? Like, Oh, it hit the news. Oh, okay. Well, I'm moving on with my day. Um, but that's not the case for victims at all, because inevitably people see this and they're like, holy shit. Hey, Kaylee, didn't you know this guy? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, thank God social media wasn't like, again, it was 2006. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine like now in this day and age, like, but they might as well said my name on the news, you know, right. They're saying what schools I previously attended, which ones I'm currently attending, which soccer team. I mean, they might as well have said my damn name on the news. And so, and then just my parents wanting to keep my life as normal as possible. And that's another thing like that your family members that are affected, no one, there's not really much support there for them. And here my parents are trying to do what's right for me in every way, right? Like what's right for me to protect me and what's right for me, for me. And <clears throat> 
excuse me, you know, playing soccer was my life. And that's why when we pulled up to that soccer tournament, my parents said, do you want to leave? No, I just want to play soccer. And I've learned that like, that's how strong and powerful my mind was that I was able to put all that aside and get out there and play on, on the field. Right. But that a few, that following week or a very, very like, not, well, not long after I turned him in, ugh, there was a meeting, a meeting, soccer meeting, and they had all of us go. So then my parents, right. Well, God, do we go? Like, it's supposed to be like a support group thing. Like if we don't go, it, cause really like says who it was, but they were still trying to keep like protect me and keep my life as normal as possible. And we walked in and everyone's sitting there and around the corner walks my abuser's attorney and a private investigator. And they pointed right at me. We know you're lying. We know this was you. I mean, totally called me out in front of the entire soccer club. And my dad like grabbed the back of my shirt and we left and I never went back. Like, do you know how like crippling that was for me? That in that moment, like I never got to go back to what I loved. It was just gone. It was just taken away from me. But at that point they are like, nope, line in the sand. You're never going back to that. And side note, um, the, what was he? The, uh, he was the owner of the league. Yeah. Posted his bail. And, uh, even after hearing the tape of him admitting to everything, so posted his bail and he was how, how I don't know, I'm going to say, I'm going to botch that. He lived with him. So that's where he bonded out to. So the, the owner of the children's soccer organization bailed the sex offender out of jail, even after hearing the tape of him admitting to everything and had him live with him for almost a year while he was waiting his trial. Like, so then my parents were like, you're definitely, and that man is now the president of Arizona Youth Soccer Association for anybody listening, which disturbs me. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what you want to hear. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what, what did the, and you, you, you've, you've talked a little bit about your frustrations with, with the, uh, you know, victims advocacy and, and sort of the, the, the process as it went through, but what did, what did the trial look like? Cause that's not something I think that some people are ever truly prepared for mm -hmm. is like, holy shit, I've got to get up in front. If it, if it went to trial, if it didn't, then, you know, it, it is what it is, but it didn't. So, uh, my parents had, because of all the things we were going through with soccer and, you know, how much we were taking on as a family, they had ultimately made the decision to take a plea deal. And I am so thankful that they did that and that they did not put me through a trial. Um, I don't know what it even would have been like, you know, if I had gone to a trial, but I will tell you, God, had any of us known today what we know they never would have taken that plea deal never in a million years so he um he had asked it's in his memorandum he asked for lifetime probation in lieu of prison time because what sex offender wants to go to prison and he actually uh he only did six months in jail as part of his uh, plea deal it was six months in jail and two terms of lifetime probation for the two counts that he pled down to um so i never went to trial <sighs> I just, I remember the, when he was convicted, um, you know, knowing that that happened that day and then getting the notice that he was out of jail and we opted in for victims rights. I should have brought it cause you probably would have got a kick out of it. I have like the actual, um, like, it's like a, 
like a carbon copy. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Press hard five copies. Yeah. I filled a lot of those out. Yeah. We do them on the computer now. Which I know. Is nice. That's what I'm saying. That's what I mean. Like I had show detective Skaggs who I work with. Um, and she was like, Oh my gosh. And I have like the victim's handbook, right. From 2006 and all these things. My mom kept everything. And so that's something else like I'll, uh, you know, just kind of drop in was my mom had kept a folder of everything and she gave it to me probably, what would you say? 2000, probably a little long or probably uh, 2012, maybe, maybe a little later or earlier, but, um, she had given me that folder with everything in it and I never opened it. I literally shoved it in like the bottom of my drawer under everything. Cause I just didn't want to see it. And I didn't want to, well, no, I lied when she gave it to me, we looked at it. Remember that? And, um, we didn't look at, uh, so much like, uh, I guess the legal part of it. I was more looking at like the testimonies and, um, there was some Yahoo when that was like one of the only things that was like a thing. Right. So comments on there and it's interesting because they were like both extremes, right? Like this girl's making this up. This isn't true. And then like, how did people not see this guy? Like he admitted to it. Like what the fuck is wrong with you for them to arrest him and convict him? Like, obviously he knew, uh, or he, he, you know, is guilty, whatever. And so I remember after reading those, I just put that folder away and I never pulled it back out. Um, but I don't remember where I was going with this. Um, oh, the victim's advocate. So, or advocacy. No one reached out to me. No one notified me. I was opting in for victim's rights. I didn't hear shit from anybody for 14 years. Nothing. Not a peep. Nothing. Nothing ever. Never. I was never contacted. So, yeah, I don't, I never, when I was younger, I never went to counseling. Um, I don't remember anybody ever following up with us. Uh, I don't remember even doing the interview um, because I think it just, it's such a trying time in your life and you are, you have such a wall up and you're in fight or flight. And so you can remember cer only certain things. Right. Um, but I don't have a ton of memory of uh, that, like that part of the process. Selfishly as a detective, I have to ask it, you are talking largely on this show to police officers. What do you want them to sort of take? And by no means are we done. This is usually a, a, a question I ask at the very end, but it's appropriate to ask it now. What, what do you, what would do you want to say to the investigators that are listening to this? So I think, um, I had heard something, gosh, I mean, within the last year and I was like, damn, I can like feel that. So, if you're out, you know, walking on the sidewalk and you're carrying all your shit, you trip and fall, um, you drop all your stuff everywhere. And you know, what does everybody do? Oh, are you okay? Yep. And they run over to you. And what do you say? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. You grab all your stuff and you get going. Then you go home. Then you realize, oh my God, I lost this paper. I never, you know, whatever. Or I dropped my chapstick, whatever. Like you, you start realizing that you don't, you're missing some things. And then you get in bed and you're like, oh my God, my elbow scraped. It hurts really bad. Or, oh, I think I sprained my foot. Right. But in that initial trauma, what do you say? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. And so of course, after I did the confrontation call, are you okay? How are you doing? Are you good? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I remember a few weeks later feeling so panicked. Um, like I can remember being in my room and like having like an anxiety attack, just thinking about that phone call. And I wish someone would have followed up with me more intentionally. And I know, I, well, I can imagine, I don't know, but in your line of work, 
you do your job, you pass it along, right? And that's, I'm sure it's like a good and a bad thing, right? Like you can't do everything, that's unrealistic and you can't take on everything. But I wish, I, and maybe it's better now, I don't know. I wish I would have had more intentional like follow-up um, from each part, even for my parents, you know, did you know this or were you notified about that? Because they just didn't have that. But, and then in the investigation process, uh, I was in like, like old ass room. I mean, it was cold environment and I've been, I've, I've been to some new places and like advocacy centers and things now. So it warms my heart and just makes me so happy to see that things have come a long way. Um, and I don't feel like I was necessarily prepped for that phone call. Like I should have been, I, I mean, it was, um, there wasn't even computer screens. It was like whiteboard and a notebook and a bunch of people sitting around me with headphones on, um, kind of like this, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, them writing certain words and circling and, and it was just, it was so aggressive, but I didn't know, like, that's how it was going to be. And, um, but I, I do remember after them asking if I was okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. But I really wasn't. But I didn't know that. How are you supposed to know that you're okay or not okay when you just do something like that? Right. Especially at, you were 15 when you were doing this. Hmm. Uh, I think the confrontation call, I was 14. 14. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's, it's hard. I mean, those confrontational calls to, to sit there and, okay, hey, this, this is what we're going to do. Uh, all right, well, good luck and let's just see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, and you don't know what they're going to, I mean, nobody knows how it's going to go. Right. So I just didn't realize how intense it would be. And, uh, and I just, like I said, I, I, I have that very, I, I just can, I can feel it. I remember a few weeks later feeling so panicked about that phone call. And of course I remember, are you okay? Are you okay? And like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. But I wasn't. And, um, I had to learn how to deal with that shit on my own. And thank God I, you know, I turned out okay because, um, I really felt like I had no one. And that's something I'm learning now, right? Like it was like, we're not going to talk about this. And then it was like, legally, you can't talk about this. And then I never even had a counselor to talk to. So it was just like me and God, like working it out. Right. And just feeling so alone and never feeling heard. And that's a, that's a really sad feeling when you're going through that is to feel alone and not heard. And that's exactly how I felt. Well, and, and in feeling alone, uh, I will, I will kind of use that to, to transition to, uh, and we talked about it a little bit beforehand, but you sit here with, with your husband and, and you've got five great kids at home. What were the challenges moving forward from, from this abuse into having, I mean, anybody who doesn't know you would probably look at you and go like, yeah, she's got a normal life, mm -hmm. but, but, Oh, to the contrary. Right. Yeah. Like, and so what, what did that look like? I mean, for you guys as a, as a couple and, and for you learning that, that like, okay, there are, there's a man out there that, that I can trust who does love me. Who's not going to, to harm me. Yeah. So I don't, I struggle with that a little bit because it was just so natural. I mean, I, I, I remember, um, we were on a golf course the first time I had told you, you know, that I was, that I had gone through something and it wasn't long after I, everything, my case had closed that we met. Um, but I remember telling him and he just listened. He didn't really say much. And just like, I guess the open communication, fortunately it never really carried over to our relationship. And I, I really don't know. I don't have a reason why it just didn't. And, and he was there, um, 
I mean, he's just, I mean, been around for so long. I feel like when my family fell apart, you know, my dad had left, um, uh, and he was there and, you know, my mom went through a really, I mean, my God, my poor, my poor parents, seriously, both of them. Like, I just can't even imagine, you know, what they went through as parents, as adults, as individuals, as a couple, like, I just can't even imagine. Um, but you know, my mom had just dealt with all that stuff with me and my, you know, my case. And then my dad decided to leave and file for divorce. And my mom just, again, like talk about just one trauma after another, after another, it just was, it just kept going and it just never. So Kelsey was around for all of that. Um, and helping, you know, with everything and my younger siblings. And, um, I think, I don't know when my dad, when my dad left, I just, we just grew closer. I mean, it never, it just never really affected us. And we have such a great like communication. I don't know. It's not like I didn't talk about it or like, you know, told him if something made me uncomfortable or bothered me and just being so open with him and go ahead. I, I would, I would, I wouldn't really ask questions. Like I would just let her, you know, if she wants to go in depth about it or she wanted to talk about it, I'm all ears. I'm there to listen. And, uh, I mean, so like I wouldn't, I wouldn't pry or anything like that. I think that that kind of helped. Well, and that might, might've been hard for, I have to imagine that, it, that there probably were questions in your mind. You're like, I, I, yeah. well, you know what, to, to add to that. And, and I know, you know, me and her have talked about this before. I think the original questions I had, which probably didn't come up until after I was a dad was how did that happen? Like, how did your parents not, how did they not see what was going on? How did you not know that was wrong? Like I had those general questions that, you know, she said irritates her when people ask those, <laughs> but from an outsider, it's like, you know, it, it seems like it should be like so simple. Like, Oh, our parents warn us of people like that. And it's like, you know, so, but I didn't ask those questions. I'm not going to. And I think too, and I can't, I don't know how else to say this except to say it like this. I really closed that chapter in my life. Like I tucked that folder away and I, the only time I think it ever got brought up was if there was a situation where like a teacher had been arrested or something, um, where I could relate if you will, but otherwise we didn't talk about it. I didn't, I didn't, it was like, I don't want to talk about it. It's done. That part of my life is done. I don't, I don't even want it. I don't want it to be a part of my everyday life. And so when I tell you for 10 years, we probably never, I mean, nothing. Like it wasn't a part of who I was and it wasn't because I was ashamed or anything. It just, it was done. That chapter, you know, it was closed. And like I said, so in, in a way, and maybe that's part of why it didn't affect us because we didn't, I didn't let it. It just, it we closed that chapter and I moved on. Um, but I, I would get so frustrated because, or now I get frustrated because I'm like, well, victim's advocacy never contacted me because I was supposed to be notified of all the big stuff, right? right. Like if he moves it or- It tells you that in the little green booklet that comes uh -huh, with it. Yeah. All the things, right? And I'm like, oh my God, thank God they never called me, right? I'd be getting a phone call like every other fucking month. And then could you imagine how that would have um, affected my life? Like, but then I also have a right to know as a victim. Mm -hmm. um, and I used to say, I don't want to know anything. I don't care, like- I don't want to know, like, what are the odds? And now like, Oh God, if you only knew, <laughs> um, but no, it just, and then too, I will say, and not in a bad way when all this stuff resurfaced in 2020 and I got the phone call, the phone call, um, it definitely affected us. I mean, 
but it affected us because it affected me. Sure. And so learning, um, you know, how to, but we were both learning. Right. And now it, before it, it didn't affect him at all, but now it's like indirectly affecting him and he's, it's becoming part of his everyday life when all this stuff happened. And then we go back to court and I have to face my abuser in court after 14 years. And then my husband sees him in, per, you know, in person, then it, then what does that do in that moment? It becomes real for him. Like, and then all the things that came after that. So we've had to be like super intentional about conversations or like if I have a rough day, you know, um, in work with talking about it or whether I'm testifying or whatever, just being, being so intentional, intentional about expressing to him, like, I don't want to talk. Now's not the time. Um, don't ask me questions like those kinds of things. And he's wonderful. He's so supportive. Um, and, and he gets it and I'll come around. I love to talk. It's like one of my favorite things in the world to do. So he knows like in my time, I will, you know, talk to him or something is wrong, but it's, it's, a it's a heavy thing. It's give or take. Um, it takes a lot of like intentional conversations and, um, I, I will say though, that we have a different perspective and lens. I feel like as parents, um, you know, and we have those conversations, uh, about things with our daughters and mm-hmm. I mean, not even, not even just daughters. Like I hate to always say that, but you know, our children, um, but I am fortunate. I don't have, um, an answer, like, a why everything turned out so okay with us. Um, it just did. And I think we've, you know, we were together so young, we've just grown together and that's probably, um, and communication. It's a big part of why we're so good. And to everybody listening that, uh, that communication and intentional conversation, um, Kaylee and Kelsey will bill you $250 for the the five minutes that it took to get that little, <laughs> little marriage lesson out there. Cause that truly is the key, right? That intentional communication. If I think the three of us as married people could communicate to anybody yeah. out there, that is what you fucking need in a yeah. relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and even hell beyond marriage, right? Like work relationships being mm-hmm. none of this, like you should understand what I'm saying because of my aura. Like, no, why don't you just communicate? <laughs> I've had somebody tell me that you, why don't you just communicate oh my God. And, and speak, speak your mind. You know, one of, one of those things, one of my bosses at work always said, and it just, it, it, it stuck with me since day one. It's, it's not what you say. It's what was heard. That's yeah, important. Absolutely. So, I mean, communication is critical and you have to explain it in a way where somebody else understands it. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes me telling him, um, and some things that are more recent, you know, and me telling him like, Oh God, um, like just some stuff like that's recently come up, like with not my case, but like my situation, right? Like I was his only, well, I don't, Supposedly, I'm his only victim. That was going to be a question that I asked: mm-hmm. was if anybody else had come forward. No, uh, I struggle a little bit with that because uh, I don't know. I don't know that polygraphs are the most um, reliable thing. I think narcissists know how to beat them, and they believe their own lies. Um, but no, I was his only victim that came forward. Um, there are a lot of things, like you know, character-wise, that were going on at the time um, when I turned him in, but nothing, no other under or underage or minors had come forward. Um, but then I wonder, I used to, even in my testimony that I wrote to the judge in 2007, I was pretty short, but the hell that I've gone, I, I had said or wrote the hell that I've gone through is worth it. If I'm saving one other victim. And 
I, when all this stuff resurfaced, resurfaced in 2020, I struggled a little bit, like maybe I shouldn't turn him in. Like, is this worth it? Like everything I'm dealing with. And then like, no bitch, shut your mouth. Like you probably saved, I don't know how many other children, like stop it. You know, be proud of yourself, but you know, explaining to my, to my husband or, you know, anybody, I can't, not that you can't relate to other victims, um, you know, of, of sexual abuse, especially like if it's around the same age and those kinds of things, you know, are like similar situations. Um, but I will tell him, I know you don't understand and I know you can't understand, but what I need you to hear is whatever I'm trying to say. Um, and he can't, he can't, like, he just cannot understand. And I have to understand that as well. I can't get upset or frustrated with him because it's, that's unrealistic, but just hear what I say and where I'm coming from. And, um, he's amazing with that. It's, I'm very, very lucky that he's so understanding. And as an investigator, the, I don't understand, uh, phrase, I, I use that in probably every interview. And I actually, I didn't even learn that as a SVU detective. I learned that from a gang detective who was basically like, you grew up in an upper middle class family in Scottsdale, Arizona. You don't understand a goddamn thing of what these kids uh, in this part of town go through. And so don't ever look at them. And so many people, you say something to them and how do they respond? Oh, I understand. And, and I'll tell people straight up, like, look, you're going to tell me stuff. I, I truly like as an investigator, like there are things that, that, I have to ask, but I've never been in your shoes. I don't understand what you've truly been through. And I, I won't ever likely know what that is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do want, want to move on to, you say that everything changed in January of 2020. And that I think is what leads us into Kaylee's loss. Yes. So, so tell me more about that. Yes. So, uh, it was like January 28th and you know, complete chaos, right? Um, five kids, whatever. It was in the evening and I was making my bed, which I know is funny because it was the evening, <laughs> but my mom called and I just knew like my phone rang. I just knew when I talked to my mom a hundred times a day and I answered and I said, what's wrong? And she's like, Hey, the Arizona De uh, department of probation or adult, adult, sorry, adult probation department is looking for you. And what I have, like what I, I cannot like stress is this is how out of left field this was for me. I said, Oh my God, did I have jury duty and I missed it? <laughs> I know that doesn't even make sense. It sounds ridiculous, but, but what I can't tell you enough is how like out of left field this came. And I was, and she said, no, they're calling about him. And I was like, uh, what, what about him? And she said, they want your number. And I said, do not give it to them until you call them back. Um, and my husband was working like, uh, I don't even remember what shit you were working like 11 to nine. I was on swing. Shift yeah. He was on swing. Shift. So it was like, you know, trying to get the kids fed and in bed or whatever. And so I'm like trying to take care of the five kids and like this bomb just dropped on me. And I said, don't give them my number until you know what's going on. So, um, my mom had talked to his probation officer the following morning and she had said that he was, um, motioning to have his lifetime probation lifted. And, I, I, my mom said, so do you want to, do you want me to give them your number? And I said, well, yeah, because how can he like, what? He has two terms of lifetime it probation. Should, like, be an option. why are we, why are we having this conversation now? I get like, I, I, I will say it a hundred times. First time I'd been contacted. And since the case had closed 14 years, a bomb just dropped on me and then trying to understand 
what the actual fuck? Like he has two terms of lifetime probation. So like, I'm thinking like, doesn't he have to motion to get off? That he chose to have. Right. That was, that was his agreement. That was his deal. Yes. That's what he asked for. And so trying to like, right. So like process all that. Right. And then on top of it, like everything had just resurfaced. So went and dug for that, um, folder because mm-hmm. then I, now I have a lot of questions. Right. And so she calls me or I called her. I don't even remember which one I was. And what my mom had said, if this goes away, she's like, she'll still be protected. Right. And Oh yeah. 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 She'll be fine. Like there's, you know, protection. Um, and she called or I call, I don't even remember what it was. I'd have to really think about it, but she said, Oh, this is so-and-so and I'm calling he's motion. He finished his treatment plan, which don't even get me started on that. Um, and he's been an ideal probationee and he's motioning to have his lifetime probation lifted. Like he just wants to spend time with his kids and his family. And I was like, stop talking, like stop talking. I could just picture it. I could see her walking. Like I could hear her heels clicking, like holding her phone. Right. And like holding all her charts. And she's like, I just got his, you know, he just came on to my caseload. Um, I've, I've seen, you've never been contacted. And so I just wanted to let you know. And I'm like, I can't, I, my mind, I couldn't even begin to understand what she was saying, except for how is this happening? Right. So then pulling out the folder, seeing like lifetime probation, and then realizing that he asked for it because I didn't realize, and that there's two terms of lifetime probation. And, um, and so then asking, well, can I have do I, if this goes away, am I protected? Because right now I'm protected under his direct probation. Um, so there was uh, a, a no contact clause in the terms of the probation. That's what it was. Yeah. And um, she's like, oh yeah, you can get a restraining order, but that's only good for, you know, six months. And, and I'm thinking like, wait, what, how is it like, what? So she had emailed me and then um, the next day, Cause she said, we'll be going to court very soon and you can do nothing. You can write or you can, um, you know, come appeal in person. And I was like, Oh God, I don't know. Like, I don't know. But I was trying to understand like the court papers. And then the only person I'm talking to is his probation officer. Like I try calling victims advocacy. Nobody's calling me back. Um, and my mom's coworkers sister is a sex crimes detective or was, um, she's out on the field now. But, um, so I get in touch with her and she's like, wait a second. What? Like she, she's like, what do you mean you're not protected after? And then by the way, um, I called my parents to tell them because we're trying to all figure out what the hell's going on. And my dad's like, Oh hell no. Like he, we agreed to this because it was lifetime. Otherwise we wouldn't have agreed to this. And then my dad and his current wife are now trying to look up information on him because we never have. Nope. We never did. Like I'm telling you, we close that part of our life. They can't find him on the public registry. So my dad's like, well, what the fuck? We agreed to him registering publicly. Like he's not on there. I'm pretty sure that's a violation. So this will be done before it's over. So then I'm talking to sex crimes and they're like, oh gosh, level one sex offenders aren't on the public registry. And I'm like, what? Like, was this whole plea deal? Like, you know, get out of our hair. We're just going to do take the easy way out. Like I'm so confused and trying to retain all the information. Um, and then putting together all these things and seeing like certain names come up and just like, I, I, mind boggling is all I can tell you, like really looking at it differently. But I just could not believe that if his probation was lifted and he's been good because he's been good, I couldn't have protection. And I said, this is such bullshit. And 
and so I, I just started doing, we start, well, not me, we started doing some investigating, um, just trying to figure out and understand things. And I was going through the motions. I'm going to court. I deserve to be heard. I was never heard as, you know, as a a minor, I'm not going to court. He doesn't deserve any more of my time. Like what's going to happen is going to happen. And so I had actually gone to yoga, which I had never done before. Um, the Tuesday before court because court, I had three weeks. That's how long I had to process from the time they called me to the time his court date was set. It was three weeks because Arizona residents, just so you know, I don't know if you knew this every third Friday, the sex offenders get to go and motion to have their probation lifted. That's news. I didn't know that. And it actually gets lifted quite often. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So third Friday is next Friday. We, uh, sex offenders walking free from their probation because why not? I guess I don't really know, but, um, I, I was going to go, I had everything squared away with the kids. Um, I kept trying to like write a testimony. Um, I can't tell you how many tears I cried. I can't tell you how dark that time was for me. Um, I was very disconnected. I think that's the word I would use. Um, I really felt like I was like having almost like an out of body experience trying to process and understand everything. And so I went to yoga and I just, I never done yoga before, but it was nice. It was yoga was nice. And I just, I'm not, I was like, I'm not going like, I have been so good in my life and never, this has never affected me. Like I'm not going. And I, I just, I can't. And Thursday night, my phone rings and it was like a blocked unknown number. And it was the prosecutor and the detective Skaggs, who I work with, um, had, she's like, wait a second, you didn't get a case number, a court number, like a date, nothing, nothing. Nope. Didn't get anything because I never received any information and they had my information. That's what's sad. Um, so the prosecutor called and she said, Hey, I'm going to talk to you as if you know nothing. And I said, please do, because I don't like, I've only been talking to his probation officer, which I feel like is a conflict of interest. Um, and she said, you know, he, I, I have to, um, leave it at the discretion of the court. And that's all she said. And I said, okay, so like, does it really make a difference if I come? And she said, well, it can. And so I had hung up the phone and I called, or I don't know if you were home. No, you weren't. I called you, you were at work. And I said, I have to go. I have to go and try. If I don't go and he gets off, I will never forgive myself for not trying. But if I go and he gets off, at least I can say I tried. And I need to figure out what happens if he does get off. I deserve protection because what if he wants to message me on, on social media? Like even I'll just give the benefit of the doubt. What if he just wanted to say, what if he got off probation and in two years he wanted to say, Oh, I'm sorry. No motherfucker. You don't get to insert yourself back in my life. Like, no, you do not. There's no reason for a defendant or perpetrator or whatever to contact their victim. There's no reason. And you know what, if you really want to send an apology letter or some shit, there's a process for that and it's to protect you more than anything but no you don't, there's no reason that that a perpetrator ever needs to contact their victim ever 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 and so i decided that i was going to go and I, I can't tell you how hard i cried that night oh my god it was i don't even know how my eyes were open the next day and i kept trying to write and i was so frustrated and 
I called my girlfriend um, and she has an organization called Valued Unconditional. And I said, I I just can't write. Like nothing is coming to me. And then she's like, then stop, stop. Just ask God to give you the words and just to help you. And I did. And I went to bed and I slept like a baby. I still don't know how. Um, I think I was just so exhausted. And I woke up the next morning and I told him, I don't want to talk. He got the kids all squared away and everywhere. I said, I just don't want to talk. I don't think we said two words to each other. And we drove down to the courthouse or court downtown. Um, and uh, it was myself, Kelsey, my mom, my sister, and then Detective Skaggs. And we went to the prosecutor's office first and walked over with them. <laughs> and as we're going up on the elevator, she says, oh, by the way, when we get off the elevator, it's a lobby full of sex offenders. And she's, she didn't tell me that before, like, cause they're all waiting. They don't open the door, you know, till right before. So she said, I like, that's it. Like we could open the elevator. He'd be standing right there. And so I just like put my sunglasses on and like walked basically like with my face and my husband's back. So I couldn't see anything. And they took me in the back room. And, uh, again, I told everybody, I don't care if you guys talk. I just don't want to talk. Like, I just want to think. And so, um, a couple cases, uh, they did, um, I think the first three guys got off. So you want to talk about defeating, like sitting in there and seeing the first three guys give their probation lifted, like, Oh my God, what's going on? Cause that was kind of my thought. Like they put us in a separate room with a TV where we could watch, you know, so the ladies, you know, the prosecutor's like, Hey, this way you can watch and kind of see and run through a few of them. So you see how it works and what happens. And, you know, initially I'm sitting there thinking like, well, okay, first of all, this whole thing sucks. That she's even has to do this lifetime means lifetime. I don't even understand why we're here, but I mean, what are the odds these guys really get off anyways? It's lifetime and they agreed to it. And the first three they let go, and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. It's real, too. It's, it is crazy. So um, I, was, I was just kind of like in my own world, but I do remember Detective Skagg saying to my mom, like, had you known this would ever have been a possibility, would you ever take in this plea deal? And my mom said, hell no. Like, this is not what we agreed to for our daughter. Um, and... I can't imagine how my mom was feeling in that moment, right? Like they accepted a plea deal on my behalf as my parents, what they thought was right. And here I am 50, almost 15 years later, having to reface my abuser in court. Like this is insanity. And so, um, you know, we went in and they were so good about, you know, maneuvering, um, like keeping him away from, you know, me and detective Skaggs was, uh, on the end and, you know, they took him away when I went up and testified, but I just, I spoke from my heart. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit spoke through me. There was not one fucking dry eye in that courtroom. Don't remember exactly what I said. Have my testimony. Um, the judge was in tears. It was very. It was very moving. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't remember. I just remember, like, you could just feel. You could feel. You know, you could just feel the room. And um, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I know I had mentioned. You know, my hell on earth began after and. Um, and then the main thing I brought up was I don't care about all the, the other terms of his probation. Like, I think there's no drinking in there or something, which I understand where they're going through treatment, sex offenders, why they can't drink. Like it makes sense, right? It's a coping mechanism. I'm sure there's whatever. I don't, I don't care about all that. What I care about is if his probation is gone, so is my protection. And you could just hear all of a sudden, like 
everybody starts on their laptops. Everyone's looking around. And so he ended up not getting his probation lifted. The judge encouraged him because of timing or something. Um, but the judge encouraged him to come back in two years. So I knew that would be November of 2021. But so we go back into the court or back into the back room and I was bombarded. I don't know how many people you think came in that room. Probably 12. Yeah. I mean, I'm bombarded by people and they were like, oh my God, you're right. There is no such thing as post probation protection for victims. And like, why isn't this a thing? And um, you know, the judge said I was the second victim in 22 years who's ever come and spoke. And they they were just all just mindful. I mean, attorneys, people who work for the governor, like there was all these people in there and I was so overwhelmed in this one, um, Dr. Tina Garvey. She came in there and she was like, I believe in you. You are so strong. Here's my number, ripped it off the corner. And she's like, you need to go to your legislator. And I was like, my what? And she, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm serious. And um, she's like, and you, we need to make this a law. I could just see her move. She's like, we'll call it Kaylee's law. And I'm like, what is this crazy lady talking about? (laughs) I was so overwhelmed. No, ma'am. The mental health floor is two doors, two doors down from here. (laughs) But she was, she was so serious. And then all these other people, even probation, they were like, oh yeah, like we'll come and you know, we'll support this. Like there's no reason that this isn't a law. And these guys are getting their lifetime probation lifted. And so, um, you know, just leaving there and dealing with all the motions of that. Um, and then I was like, what's a legislator? <laughs> my husband's like, Oh my God, I can't with you. But, and then he's like, well, we need to find our representative or our elected representatives. And I was like, a what, what's, who's that? And he's like, just, I'll fi- I'll find it. So he like gives me this notebook or piece of paper out of a notebook with everything on it. And then he's like, Hey, by the way, Here's Rachel Mitchell's information. Because my mom had said to the prosecutor, I wish, because that was my prosecuting attorney in 2006. And she's like, I know she doesn't live here anymore. And the prosecutor that day was like, yes, she does. She works for MCAO. And my mom said, what? So we ended up reconnecting and he got me the information. Um, but I, I, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew I was going to do it because I was like, I don't care how this happens. I don't care Kaylee's law. I don't, that didn't, none of that mattered to me. No victim should ever have to do what I just did. No victim should have to reface their abuser and ask for protection. This is such bullshit. So I wrote this, I mean, pretty short. It was like one page. Cause you want, you don't want to lose people's attention. Right. Sure. Um, to Senator Kerr, cause she was my elected official. And that was, uh, February 26th. And then COVID happened like the next week and nothing else in the world mattered. So, Uh, I could have given up. I could have, you know, let it go or whatever. And um, I decided for a little bit, and I remember talking to Detective Skaggs and saying, um, you know, should I email? Like, should I let it? And she's like, I don't know. Everything's so crazy. And I didn't know how session, I didn't know anything. Like, so time went on. um, He was working 312s. That was his schedule in 2020. Um, so we did a lot of traveling. We drove 14,000 miles in. Holy crap. I know we did a lot of traveling in 2020. It was awesome. I pulled my kids out of school cause I wasn't dealing with the bullshit. Sure. I'm like, Nope, I'll homeschool them. So we did like the whole unschool thing and it was great under the circumstances, but yeah, no, I don't want to be a homeschool mom. <laughs> that, well, that in and of itself is a whole different thing to unpack. But if, if you could, I, and, and I think you've hit the key point of Kaylee's law is that no victim 
should ever have to face their abuser ever again. And you do look at like orders of protection. Oh, okay. But in the state of Arizona, an order of protection is only valid for a year. And then you got to go and do it all over again. Mm -hmm. So if you would take, you know, take kind of our our last 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes or so, and and really kind of summarize what Kaylee's law is. And you've got it um, in two states right now, right? Yeah. Um, uh, kind of take us through that, that process Yeah. So, and, and your 14,000 mile oh uh, tri- trip across America. Well, like I said, <laughs> I could talk to you all day long. Um, but so when we drafted Kaylee's law originally, they just, no one could believe that it wasn't a law. And so we kind of created this new law that gave victims indefinite protection. Well, then it's like defining that it passed in Arizona with complete bipartisan support in four months. And it's just, it, there was no pushback. No, there was a couple questions, which is fine. Give me all the questions, but there was no pushback. And, um, and then, so that the governor signed it on April 20th. Well, then I didn't know that we have to wait for signy die. And then it takes 90 days for it to go into effect. And then like, when are we going to start working? Like people are asking me, how do they get protection under this law? And then I have this team put together and they're all like, well, we don't know. Like, what do you mean you don't know? And then they're like, well, this is all kind of jacked up anyways, because this is under an IAH and an IAH is only valid for a year. So now a victim is going to have to file every year. And you should have seen me on the zoom call. I was like, no, like I'm so upset and angry right now. This defeats the entire purpose of the law. I'm not okay with this. I'm not having this. No. And, um, he was like, oh, so when a perpetrator's probation ends, a victim starts like, no, this isn't okay. So um, it went into a, Kaylee's law in Arizona went into effect September 29th of 2021, um, and it gave the victim the option to petition the court for that indefinite protection. Again, what does that mean? So I was talking to a couple of people like way high up, and I said, "How do we fix this? I need this cannot be under traditional injunction." They're like, "Well, we have to create a new chapter." Okay. Uh, well, it's not that e- I don't care. Is it possible? Open a word document. Well, Get yeah, keyboard, I'm like, typing. is it possible? And they're like, well, it's kind of shooting for the stars. And I said, um, okay, but is it possible? Yeah. It's shooting for the stars. Kind of what our country was built on. Yeah. But at any rate. So <laughs> anyways, um, in the meantime, in July, Wisconsin drafted the law. And so I started working with them and, uh, in Arizona, it, we just had to kind of leave it as was until this current session. And so um, SB 1653 is the amendments to Kaylee's law. We created a new chapter, which is a natural lifetime um, protection. There's no loophole in there. And I was so adamant about the word natural because you can't, well, I guess the fucking everyone's making their own definitions of words and, and you know, whatever. But I'm like, no, I want natural life, the defendant's natural lifetime. Um, and, and then I'm thinking like, cause I always try to think like level headly or like reasonable. If this protection is in place for a victim or sorry, a defendant's natural lifetime, I would think a judge might be more inclined to lift their probation knowing that, Hey, all these other things go away. You just can't contact your victim. So I'm looking at it as like, well, if you want to play both sides of the fence, like, I mean, I guess, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. Why, why would a defendant want to fight this? Yeah, well, it's not the defendant, it's the Democrats. Um, but the and that's been a problem this session. Like they don't they're like, why should this be hanging over their their head for their natural lifetime? Why why it shouldn't be hanging over their head. Let's talk about what the victim has to 
Oh my God. But they don't care. Nobody, even the the system, they're more concerned about the perpetrator and their rights and what they get and what they have available and whatever. And I had, I've had many people show up and fight me for this natural lifetime. Um, or the, 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 just the word natural. It's because you took away their loophole. Duh. That's what I like to do. I mean, I like to like, you know, here's a problem. Let's fix it. And, um, my, here's my thing. If someone steals something from a store and they get caught and they get arrested and they do a couple weeks in jail and then they're on six months of probation and they do their community service, what is still a crime when all that's said and done? Well, still shoplifting. Is that, is that, does that mean it's hanging over their head? No, that's just the law and there's no reason. And just so everyone knows there's a clause in there. If you would like this protection to not be in place, you can serve the court and you don't have to have this protection. Um, but I, I'm very confident in saying and speaking on behalf of most victims that they would want this lifetime protection and they shouldn't, they wouldn't want to worry about, um, you know, having to go to court and things. So we have that in there and we have it also where the defendant will be served um, when they're prosecuted. And then for victims who their cases have already been prosecuted, the court will serve them um, and they take care of all the charges um, uh, or financial. Yeah. It's very, very streamlined. Like the original bill was not that way. It was where basically the victim had to pay a process server to serve the individual. Yes. Cause it was under a traditional IH. So, um, so yeah, we have the amendments. Um, we're kind of stuck in the house right now because, uh, the house took a week off and, um, then the NRA got involved. How did the NRA get involved? (laughs) Because a very, um, nasty woman, uh, tipped them off about the law. And if a person has an injunction, they can't buy a firearm. mm -hmm. So, uh, they have, they've gotten involved and which, I was talking to one of the representatives who had no idea who I was at the Capitol. And he said, you know, well, this is, this could affect our gun sales. And in the off chance that an offender goes to the restoration process and gets their civil liberties restored and um, that they get their probation lifted and they get the right to own a firearm, this could affect us. And I was like, you know what? All I'm hearing out of your mouth is you're more concerned about providing a sex offender, a felon with a firearm than you are protecting victims. Yeah, because as a sex offender, you can't buy a gun, period. Right? Like that's that's sort of the whole joke about like, uh, hey, maybe don't rob random houses. And for legal reasons, I'm not suggesting this, but it is a meme that says, don't rob me to go on the sex offender registry because their addresses are there and you know they're not allowed to own guns. So. <laughs> I've never seen that. But I'm like, why are you getting involved with someone? There's we there's so many scumbag people out there. But fortunately, we've worked things out with them and they're not in opposition anymore. Um, but so that's here in Arizona uh, and then Wisconsin, It the governor signed it, um, I think it was last week, and he has requested my presence this Friday when he signs it um, into law there. So um, build those frequent flyer miles or are yeah. you driving? No, God, I don't have time. I, no, I don't have time to drive <laughs> that's right like now. A, that's like a 23-hour drive. No, so. well, we are driving in the summer for vacation. We drive back to Wisconsin and North Carolina, but um no, it's um, two states is great, but it's not enough because we have an entire nation to protect. And the thought of victims not having this protection everywhere, it just breaks my heart. Like they shouldn't, of all the bullshit and, and the trauma and everything they have to go through, the last thing they should be worried about is having to fight 
their abuser X amount of years later to ask for protection. And I just, I am so determined to get this passed across our nation. Are there any states where you don't have to worry about it because there's already something in place? No. Oh, Lord. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because lifetime used to mean lifetime. Right. It used to actually be true to its definition. It's not anymore. In most states, it's seven to 14 years. So it's... It's a huge problem. Um, in my opinion, the whole system is very broken. Um, we needed like an overhaul. I, I, that's what I believe. Um, and I wish even getting victims to like come and help fight this, it's it's really hard. And it's, it's because getting on the other side of it is so difficult. And again, there's so much concern about um, the perpetrator and there's very little about the victims. It's, it's really heartbreaking. What do you think has been like your and maybe you've already touched on it. What do you think is your key takeaway from this entire experience? Oh gosh. Um, like, I, like if you, if you could, I mean, and this, this granted the majority of the people listening to this are in law enforcement, but say on the, on the off chance, 14 year old Kaylee's listening to this. That I truly believe that God has a purpose for our pain. And sometimes it's really, really hard to see that. Um, but that you can be so much stronger and braver than you even know. And, um, anything's possible and there's going to be a lot of roadblocks and a lot of doubt and a lot of days you want to give up, but you have to keep fighting. And, uh, as we do, uh, come to a close here, how do people, how do people follow along? How do people support your movement? Uh, where do, where do they, where do they go to find you? So I share a lot on Instagram. Um, that's where I do most of my stuff. So my handle is the Kaylee Kozak. Um, and you know, on top of this, I'm working on other bills, um, mostly here in Arizona, but just kind of fixing the system, like getting sex offenders on the registry and things. Um, cause that's, God, that's even a mess. But, um, I am very passionate about bringing light to this area. So Instagram and then um, our website, because you still matter.org. And that's why I'm doing this. I'm fighting for victims and survivors because you still matter. I like it. So because you still matter.org, people can find you on Instagram. Uh, would you encourage people to, uh, uh, would it be helpful at all if people got a hold of their legislators and were like, Hey, oh. uh, Hey, figure this out. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. And gosh, just even showing up to testify like in committee, um, because the last two times I've shown up to testify for bills, I have had more people in opposition for the bills than for it. Um, and it's funny because online RTS in Arizona, the request to speak where you can get on and, um, you know, put if you're for or against a bill, there's more people signed up for the bill, but nobody wants to come down to the Capitol and testify. And I get it. It's intimidating. It's scary. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to do, especially if you're sharing like a personal experience, but you know, the thing is for, um, this, the statistic being one in four, I, like where's ever like, where, where are all these people? Um, and I know they're out there. It's just, it's so hard to come forward and, uh, it's, you're not alone. And I, I wish, I wish I could truly make every survivor feel that, that they are not alone. And you're never out of the fight, no. right? Like as you've, as you've said, stick with it. Yeah. And something, something that like we encourage people to do as investigators is definitely come forward. You, you are not wasting our time. I literally tested into my position. I, I had to want to be there. Mm -hmm. And if you get an investigator um, who is acting like they don't want to be there, 
then you need to hold them accountable for that. I'm again, I'm huge into cops need to hold themselves accountable. And if you've taken a job, just like you get a detective who's shitty when they get called out in the middle of the night, like, dude, again, you, you tested for that spot, likely against people and you came out on top. So don't be an asshole. Just, yeah. <laughs> just do your job. <laughs> yeah. But I think I will tell you, and gosh, even all the stuff that I'm dealing with now, um, stuff with my case, um, it's, I see why people, why victims and survivors don't want to turn in their abuser. My God, where is the justice? It's, I mean, I have gone as far as having information given to me because it. I'm telling you, it just floods to me and handing um, whoever proof of things, nothing is done because that would require them to do their job. And it's such a slap to the face. And so I, I know, I think I say it every, almost every day. Fuck. I know why people don't, don't, they just walk away from this. Like it's so much easier to just walk away and not have to deal with it. So I get it. And every day that I think about walking away, I think about that one in four. I think about that third Friday. I look at my children and remember why I'm fighting for this. And Kaylee has taken this fight uh, as far as she can. Uh, and truly, because you still matter, hence probably the name of, uh, of her website there. So definitely follow along, uh, tune in to, uh, to Kaylee's efforts uh, moving forward with Kaylee's Law and providing victims of sexual abuse uh, truly the protection that they, not only that they need, but quite frankly, that they deserve. Should, there shouldn't even be a question. It should already be something that's out there. But as you pointed out, the, the system is, is broken and flawed in so many ways. Um, uh, but I commend you uh, and you, Kelsey, uh, you know, for the work that, that both of you are doing for, for moving this ball down the field one yard at a time. I mean, as, as, uh, as I've said a little bit ago, you're never out of the fight. So uh, again, I am truly inspired. This has honestly been probably one of the more, uh, uh, like I've, I've just sat here quiet because <laughs> I, I don't often, I'm not often at a loss for words. Oh. Um, but here we are. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Um, may have you come back on, you know, in the future as, yeah, as time moves forward, I am excited to see, uh, what happens with Kaylee's law. So thank you so very much for coming on the show. Uh, to, and to everybody who's listening out there, stay safe. We'll see you on the road.